Uh, good afternoon, we're in John 7, and we're reading 40 to 52. I'll give you a moment to find that in your Bibles, um, back end of John 7. We'll pray before we read God's Word. Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to feel, wills to obey. Deal with us according to your steadfast love, teach us your statutes. Show us Christ that we may love and worship him with all that we have. In light of all that he is for us, in the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen. So let's look at John 7 and verse 40. John chapter 7 and verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Might be helpful just to pause there and say that that's one paragraph. And now we come to the second paragraph and that will become clear in a few moments why I said that. So the second paragraph, verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? Uh, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. We're back in John's Gospel and in Luke chapter 2, after the shepherds, after the angels, after the birth, after the manger, remember we met Simeon, Christmas Day service last year. And after blessing the Lord Jesus and his parents in the temple, Simeon turned specifically to Mary and gave her that solemn word of warning. Behold, this child is appointed for the fool and many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Now up until that point in Luke's gospel, Things had been good. There was no room for him at the inn. Zechariah couldn't talk for a while. But for two chapters, things had been good. Babies have been born. Songs have been sung. Angels are praising God. Shepherds rejoicing. The Holy Spirit is everywhere in the first two chapters. But then that pervasive note of joy takes a solemn twist because Simeon says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. There is going to be a great reversal. Those on top wind up on the bottom. Those on bottom wind up on top. Some will believe and to them Jesus will be precious but others will not believe. They will stumble and fall and speak against the sign. Jesus did not come to bring the kind of peace on earth that just makes everyone happy and unified and we all just get along. Christ did not promise world peace, not on this side of glory. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, 
peace to men on whom his favour rests. So it is a peace particularly and exclusively for those on whom God's favour rests. It is a peace for those who follow Jesus. Jesus did not promise to make the world a universally safe, friendly place where everyone likes everyone else. He promised peace, but in another sense, just as authentically, he promised division. Father will be against son, daughter against mother, child against parent on account of him. Sometimes Jesus makes things worse, not because he is for family strife or because he demands people to be fighting, far from it. But he does demand absolute allegiance to himself, and that in itself is divisive. He makes astonishing claims that are bound to cause rifts in families. Whenever the gospel is preached with great power, with all its edges and boldness and glory, it will upset things. If you read Acts, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in power, two things happened, if you remember. People believed and rejoiced, saying this is the best thing that has happened. And other people hate the message, and they hate the messenger. So Jesus is both that precious cornerstone and a rock of offence. All to say, we see in this text, in what we've read, in John 7, 40-52, division. It openly says it in verse 43, there was a division among the people over him. And the first thing to notice about this division in John 7, it involves people who otherwise you would think have a lot in common. We're not talking about Jews and Gentiles, and while that happens in many other parts of the New Testament, that is not the issue here. We're, talking, we're not talking about secular and spiritual. We're not talking about oppressed and oppressors, about the Jewish lords and Jewish vassals. We don't have any record that this division fell along generational lines now think of who we have in these verses we have first century jews probably males in this passage although they represent the opinion to both men and women if you think about it the people in the passage share the same geography the same history the same language the same culture the same ethnicity the same religion they're divided over jesus in some families jesus brings people together he is the one thing everyone has in common. I trust that is, that is the reality in our church, in a church. If that is the situation with your family, praise God, that is an amazing gift. It is an amazing gift. It is not the situation for most people in the world. It's not the norm throughout history and throughout the world. In many families, maybe in your family, Jesus separates people. It may be said that the division is over religion or spirituality or the church, but in essence, the division is over Jesus. Who is this man? Verse 43, there was a division among the people. And the Greek word for division there is schisma. And you can hear that word schism. There is a party, there is a faction, there is a pulling apart, there is a tearing, a sense of confusion and conflict. So what we see in Acts is what we see here. It is what we see so often in our own world. Where Jesus is murky and muddy, no one divides. He, because he's just a Jesus of our own making, which doesn't divide anyone. But the real Jesus, the Jesus with absolute clarity, the Jesus we see in John's Gospel, when this Jesus speaks, when this Jesus acts, People who would have otherwise found themselves together 
find themselves diametrically opposed. So we see a division here between two groups of people, or among, sorry, we see a division among, not between, we see a division among two broad groups of people. And that's why I said when we were reading it, just pay attention briefly to the paragraphs, because that first paragraph, verse 40 through 44, I don't know what to call them, maybe laity, just for want of a better way of describing them, the crowd, ordinary people, the crowd of pilgrims who are here for the Feast of Booths, who probably came from all over Israel. That's the first paragraph, 40 to 44. And then the second paragraph, we have the leaders. We have the spiritual leaders. So if you like, the crowd, the laity in the first paragraph, and the leaders, the Christian, the religious leaders, sorry, not the Christian leaders, the religious leaders in the second. And we're going to see divisions among both groups, among the crowd, among the ordinary people, and among the leaders, the priests, the Pharisees, and the officers. And in each of these groups, we see three different opinions about Jesus. So two paragraphs, and each one has three different opinions about Jesus. So the first paragraph, John 7, 40 to 44, the division among the crowd. And you see the three different opinions, they're spelled out clearly. The first is in verse 40. This is the first opinion in the first group in verse 40. When they heard these words, okay, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. The ESV has correctly a capital P from Deuteronomy 18, 18. I will raise up a prophet like you from among their brothers. They were expecting a prophet like Moses. And so they understand this first group. Well, here is the prophet. This is the heir to Moses. And they saw him give bread like Moses had given manna. They saw him provide living water like water came out of a rock in Moses's day. They saw him stand and declare that this feast is fulfilled in his person. Yes, this is the prophet. This is the one we expected like Moses. That is what some people think. So the second opinion is in verse 41. One, at the beginning of the verse, others said, this is the Christ. This is the second opinion of the first paragraph, the first group, the crowds. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, the anointed one. Now we know from the New Testament lens that the expectation of the capital P prophet and the expectation of the Christ were looking for the same person. We know that. But in first century Israel, they didn't lump these things together under one prophetic expectation. But they were looking for the prophet, like Moses, capital P, and they were looking for the Messiah. And the messianic expectation was a constellation of ideas, but most prominently would be a son of David. So they were looking for the anointed one like David. They were looking for the prophet like Moses. That makes clear. A king like David, to sit on the throne of Israel, to restore Israel to the glory days of yesteryear. So we can applaud these two groups, these two opinions. They're close to getting things right, because Jesus is, in fact, the capital P prophet. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. But clearly they have not put everything together yet, because some think he is one and others think he is the other. You could think of it like this, that there are at least three kinds of prophecies about the deliverer to come 
that they were expecting. And these three kinds of prophecies line up with the three offices of Christ, prophet, priest and king. And where there were certain words of expectation that were prophetic, he was going to be like Moses. He was going to speak the truth. He was going to perform miracles like the prophets did. And then there were priestly expectations that he would be a suffering servant, although they did not understand that at this point fully. And then there were kingly expectations that he would be the Messiah, the one who sat on the throne to lead God's people to victory, prophet, priest and king. And they had yet to see this whole constellation of ideas were going to be fulfilled in one. So some said he is the prophet. Others said he is the Messiah. The third opinion amongst the first group is the second half of verse 41, where it says, but some said is the Christ to come from Galilee. The echoes there, John 1, 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Micah prophesied the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, the city of David. John in his gospel often writes with a sense of irony. People are saying more than they know. And they are right. Jesus actually came from Bethlehem where he was born. But even beyond that, actually, he came from heaven, which is the main point in John's gospel. John did not make a point like some of the others that he came from Bethlehem. Jesus is not quick to correct misunderstandings about his earthly origin because what he wants to challenge them is that his earthly origin is not his real origin at all. He comes from the Father in heaven. So there is a division. He is the prophet. He is the Christ. And no, he is a nobody because he comes from Galilee. So there are the three opinions. He is the prophet. He is the Christ. And he is a nobody because he comes from Galilee. And some want to kill him, verse 44, and some wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Now, you may think at this point that is very interesting. I see the division. Some people wanted to kill him. Others wanted to arrest him. But I may not be fully on board with Christianity or the friends that I have may not all be Christians, but I do not want to kill Jesus. Why do you want to arrest him? Why did they want to kill him? What is it they wanted to make him suffer? Well, maybe some of that came out of the cross, but really the people wanted him to disappear. And this is where the application is, because he was making life difficult. He was questioning things people didn't want questioned. You can apply it. Jesus is challenging me in areas I do not want him to challenge me. You see, we don't have to want to kill Jesus, to murder Jesus, to arrest Jesus. No, like these crowds, we simply want him to go away. Leave me alone, Jesus. Stop pressing in on my life. Stop convicting me. Stop making things difficult. Stop causing tension and strife. Stop asking me to take up my cross when it's going to cost me my job. Or my school grades or my career. Many people want Jesus to be gone. Stop talking about this Jesus. Enough already. There is going to be division and we see that here when it will always be the case. Sometimes we make evangelism even more difficult for ourselves because we think if we just had the right method or if we just had the right apologetics or if we had the right reasons that demanded a verdict and then more reasons that demanded a verdict and then more and more and more, then everyone would become Christians. Well, I'm for all good 
apologetic resources have been trained to do that. But they had Jesus in front of them. They had the miracles that they could see. And they still did not want anything to do with him. Do not expect that you're going to argue people into heaven. And that you're going to say X, Y, Z, Messiah. And then they say, yeah, that's right. People have different categories today, but people are still divided. They may not be divided over whether he is the prophet or he is the Christ or whether or not he came from Galilee. That was their context. But today, but today they would say he was a good man. Or he was an invention of the early church. He wasn't God until Nicaea. Or I like Jesus, but he was just a social reformer. He was a guru. He was a holy man. Same division. You put Jesus in front of someone, some will say he's a good man. He did good things for people. Others would say he's a holy man. The Muslims say something about Jesus. The Mormons say something else. There is division. So there is division in the first paragraph amongst the laity, the crowds, the people. Turn your attention now to the second paragraph, 45 to 52. There's division amongst leaders. We had Three groups in the first, the some, the others, and some others. Now we have three more groups. And the first is the officers. John 7, verse 32, we read about who they are. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So the officers had this arrest warrant, and when the officers came back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, they're a bit dumbfounded. And verse 45, we pick it up in verse 45. The officers then came back to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And then the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Now, you have to remember the officers, you hear officers, you may think military or Stasi or something. But the officers simply was a task that had been given to the Levites. They're Israelites, they're from the Levitical clan. They're part of the priestly apparatus. They're not priests themselves, but were given tasks to be officers within the temple precincts. So do not think military Rambo. They're church staff. The Pharisees and the chief priests say arrest him, and then they listen. Now, they're not believers. They haven't crossed that bridge of faith, but they recognize that Jesus spoke like no one else had ever spoken. You remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus finished, the crowds were astonished because he was teaching them as one who had authority. And these Levites, these officers, these staff, recognize it. We do know they didn't know who he was, but they hadn't ever heard anyone speak like him. He was a man, but he doesn't speak like a man. He doesn't sound like a man. So they stopped short of fulfilling their task. So the first opinion, the first group amongst the second group is the officers, and then you have the chief priests and Pharisees, which is the second opinion. And if you know first Jewish, so first century Jewish context, politics makes strange bedfellows. The chief priests and Pharisees are often mentioned together, but they really didn't didn't get along. We think of them as the bad guys in the Gospels, but the priests were the clergy and the Pharisees were laity. And oftentimes the Pharisees faulted the priests for being too lax and being too cooperative with the Romans. The Pharisees were more popular with the rank and file they took the law more seriously they called out their oppressors they thought the chief priests were the elite well they come together here the chief priests and the pharisees and they're flabbergasted 
And they say in verse 37, have you been deceived to the officers? The disdain that they have for the officers and the crowds. And in verse 48, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that doesn't know the law is accursed. They, didn't, they, they don't know the law, they're accursed. And that's what they think of these people, the contempt they hold the crowds with. The people, they probably had in mind a phrase which had become a popular phrase, uh, the people of the land, actually ha-adam. You know, we've been studying that in Genesis, or ha-haretz, the people of the land. It was used to distinguish the run-of-the-mill Jews from their leaders. The people of the land were thought to be dirty or regular people. Abraham Lincoln allegedly said, I couldn't find a definitive um, attribution, but he allegedly said, God must really like ordinary people or he would not make have made so many of them. Well, they think the opposite. That God must really actually like us, the Pharisees, because that's why he gave us chief high priests, the chief priests, or such important positions, much more important than the people of the land. So they're digging as deep as they can into these Levitical officers. You're like the ordinary people. You're like the people of the land. You're like the dirty people. They don't even know the law. They don't can't read or write. They don't understand the Torah. They're lawbreakers. They're accursed. Are you siding with them? How can you be so gullible to listen? So the chief priests and the Pharisees, their second, this second opinion of the second group, are saying to the Levitical officers, are you like the, the accursed people? We know no one who is significant, no one who is academically credible, no one who is professionally important, the elite believes in Jesus. In all different ways, depending on your context, your family, your profession, you can feel that pressure. If you're a thinking person, you do not believe in this Jesus. So the final group, the final opinion in the third, second group is Nicodemus. Oh, we've seen him before. We remember John 3, the one who doesn't understand what it means to be born again. Israel's teacher, a very important person. He knew his Bible, but he didn't know this. We'll encounter Nicodemus one more time at the end of the gospel, so I will save my Nicodemus sermon for later. But here he is in a neutral position. He's one of them. It's almost underlined in verse 50. He'd gone to him before, and he was one of them, the chief priests and the uh, Pharisees. He's one of the important people. He's the elite. He's one of the upper crust. And he says, almost clear in his throat in verse uh, 51, um, does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does. It's akin to what Gamaliel does in Acts, saying time out before we're going to condemn all these people, slow down and think about this. The accusation was that the crowd were accursed because they didn't know the law. And Nicodemus points out subtly, you don't really know the law because our law says you must treat a man fairly. The Old Testament law says you have to give a man a hearing. You don't condemn just because accusations are made. It's important for us to see in this social media age where shame gets dumped on people and someone gets accused and they are immediately cancelled well the bible says something different nicodemus says well should he at least get a hearing well they do not want to hear in verse 52 are you from galilee too no prophet comes from galilee in their zeal to condemn jesus they overlook that jonah that nahum come from galilee that's not really the point. They don't want anything to do with Nicodemus 
They don't want anything to do with Jesus having a fair hearing. Nicodemus may not have faith yet, but he at least he's harming, arguing for human kindness and decency. So notice what we have here. We have three opinions in each half. We have three opinions in the crowd and three opinions in the leaders. And in each half, you could say we have a group that is far away, a group that is close and a group that is closer. First paragraph, you've got those who want to kill him, those who want to arrest him. They're the furthest away. Then you have those who think he is the prophet. Well, they are close. And then you have those who think he is the Christ. I would say they're closer. They're really close. They are right, but they do not fully understand what they mean by that. So that's why I said we are far close, closer. And the same thing in the second paragraph. You have the chief priests and the Pharisees. They're the furthest away. Then you have the Levitical officers who won't arrest him. At least they see something unique about him. They're close. And then you have Nicodemus who is closer. He's inching his way towards some sort of faith in Christ, possibly. So you have two halves and three opinions, far, close and closer. Let me give you three points of application as we wrap up our sermon this afternoon. Number one, given that all that we've seen and these three groups that are far close and closer, here is the first point. Do, do not be surprised if there is division when you share the gospel. In fact, expect it, but do speak. Jesus gave the good representation of Jesus and the best, the only representation representation of Jesus but wherever he went people said I'm not interested in that in fact I wish you would go away I wish you would disappear I wish you would not speak so do not be surprised and do not let that stop us from speaking whether it be in a comment online or an email pray for opportunities to tell the good news and do not be surprised if people don't like it second point have you counted the cost? Division by itself is not necessarily a scandal. Now, sometimes it is. The division that we do not want is when we're divided over things that should not divide us. But things that should divide people should divide people. Have you counted the cost? Have you counted the cost in following the Lord Jesus and what it may mean? Yes, if we were all perfect, we all saw things clearly, we would all agree. But the answer is not just to get along. The problem is that people reject the truth. People sometimes divide over things that really are sources of division. So as you set out to follow Christ, as I follow Christ, we must be prepared. At some point in our life, following Jesus will make life harder. In fact, I think we can safely say from Holy Scripture, if your faith does not cost you anything, it probably is not real faith. Because even if you're in the most Christian part of the most Christian area in the most Christian country in the world and your family is all Christian there will still come a point Paul told Timothy you can count on whoever desires to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted there will be a time when true Christian faith will rub up against the sinful nature of men and women and they do not like it and you need to be prepared for that young people need to be prepared whether in school or in university you need to be prepared. People will, will not like things the Bible says. We have to be prepared. We have to count the cost. And the final question is, the final point is, where are you? Ask yourself that question sincerely. 
It might be possible that some people say, I do not want to kill Jesus. You might be close. You might be closer. It matters if you're close and you're never in. That's what John Calvin said about these Levitical officers. He said, even in the present day, we see many persons who too much resemble these officers, who are reluctantly drawn into admiration of the doctrine of the gospel, yet are so far from yielding to Christ, they remain in the enemy's camp. Might that be you? You have an admiration for Jesus Christ. You have a sense of wonder at the gospel message, but halfway is not in. Maybe you're like the officers, you're torn. You cannot bring yourselves to arrest him, but you cannot bring yourself to bow the knee to him either. It'd be a pity if you allowed yourself to be close or closer, but not in. If you're not there and you know it, take a good look at this Jesus who beckons you to come, who invites you to come, who draws you to come, that you might have your sins forgiven and have real everlasting joy. Amen.